The American dream is an aspiration, a term that defines what every American should reach for. But do we even know what it is? Is it the same for everyone? And how can you get it? In this episode, we're going to take a closer look and figure out if there's any actual reality to this dream, or if it's one big PR scam, as we answer the question, what is the American dream? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me today for the first time, and hopefully not the last, is Christopher Bixby an emeritus professor at the University of East Anglia. He has published more than 60 books, co-written radio and television plays, and published a number of novels, as well as a biography of Arthur Miller. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I think there's few people probably more qualified to talk about the American dream uh, than yourself. So uh, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. So I think it's, it's a term that's really banded about a lot, and generally in marketing um, context. So I'd like to really start by just understanding from you, when was the American dream first used and, and, and why? The term itself was used, well, fairly frequently in the 19th century, but I think people think of it as being codified in some way um, by a particular book published in 19. 19- 31 by a historian. His name was James Truslow Adams, and the book was called The Epic of America. And he did talk about uh, the American dream. And what he said was, it's not a dream of merely material plenty, and not a dream of motor cars and high wages, merely. I love the words merely <laughs> in both of those, because it obviously was, in his mind, partly that. But he said it's a dream of social order in which every man and woman should be able to uh, fulfill themselves depending on their innate abilities. So it's partly material in his view, partly spiritual. And I think as we sort of wander back in time to see at least the elements that went into this notion of the American dream, we'll find that combination there. But there is something significant about the fact that he wrote this in 1931. We were two years into the Depression what are these motor cars? I mean, by 1931, the Ford A model, sales had dropped by 50%. By the following year, sales of any motor cars dropped by 75%. People weren't interested in high salaries. They were interested in any salaries. They were bankrupt. They were on the street in many cases. So it's slightly, oh, he himself came from a wealthy family. Maybe that gave a certain slant to what he was saying and his choice of motor cars and high salaries. That wasn't the experience of most Americans. But you can see there are elements of what became a dream then. But if you don't mind, um, I'd like to give you another example. This actually from much later, though 60 years ago, which goes closer to explaining what the popular conception of the American dream was. And that actually was from a pop song. It was called, fittingly enough, Only in America. And it was originally composed as a kind of protest song. So the the first lines of it were, Only in America, 
land of opportunity, can they have a seat in the back of the bus just for me? Only in America, when they preach the golden rule, will they start to march when my kids go to school? So there was a protest song, but it was decided fairly rapidly this wasn't going to go on very well. So they rewrote it. Uh, it was recorded initially by a black group, um, the Drifters, but they called back the recordings. They sent them out to radio stations. They called them all back and rewrote the lyrics. And they gave it to a white group called, fittingly enough, Jay and the Americans. And, and these are the lines, the lyrics from that song. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep a pauper and wake up a millionaire. Only in America can a kid without a cent get a break and maybe grow up to be president. Only in America, land of opportunity, can a kid who's washing cars take a giant step and reach right up and touch the scars. Only in America can a dream like this come true. Well, there is, I think, closer to the popular sense of, of what the American dream was. But again, I mentioned 1931 from that first example. This is 1963. Remember what was happening in 1963. The civil rights movement was underway. The governor of Alabama, um, George Wallace, said, you know, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Uh, Mega Evers, civil rights worker, was murdered. The president of the United States was going to be murdered. And this was the year of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And interestingly, in that speech, he refers to the American dream. You might think he would be critical of it, but in fact, what he was looking forward to was the moment when black Americans could claim that dream along with everybody else. Now, he made that speech on the, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and he quoted from Lincoln in that speech. And it was uh, the fact that it was, um, hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. So that's a fascinating occasion. There's that popular song, celebrating the American dream, rewritten from a protest song about the racial situation in America and presented to the public, came 27th incidentally in the hit parade at the time, presented to the American to the time when America was in deep turmoil. So the gap between the dream and reality was fairly evident at that time. Uh, so there's there's a lot to, to unpack there and we're going to work through through some of this, but I want to I wanna start with this idea that I perhaps naively with some understanding of american history associated this idea of the american dream with something more sort of linked to this sort of this frontiersman this this idea of you know moving west of this sort of independent american uh, making a life for for himself I'll, I'll i'll say him but actually from what you've described it's it was conceived as something far more materialistic um, and i do wonder if how it was then used later on to be a very politically loaded term in the context of that song and then by Martin Luther King is the American dream just a word that has become quite loaded and is now just used as a marketing tool as something political just to stir up feeling among Americans virtually every president feels obliged to mention the American dream <laughs> there are 336 million Americans so there are probably 336 American dreams. There is an attempt, of course, to make a kind of heterogeneous society feel homogeneous. I mean, 
I used to teach a course on the American dream, believe it or not. And in the seminar room were British students and American students. And I began by saying, what's the British dream? And a silence of the ages fell on the room because self-evidently there appears to be no British dream. Now, is that a good thing in that we are, we know who we are. We don't actually have to codify anything. Or is it a weakness? Because it suggests we, we don't have a vision. We don't have a sense of where we're going or what we're going for or what we are about. Mm. Now, the Americans, of course, the Americans have to pledge allegiance in school, something that baffled the British because they just couldn't <laughs> imagine being asked to do it or if asked to do it, actually agreeing to do so. And I would get the Americans to recite that because that is precisely an attempt to bring together heterogeneous peoples. And it's worth, maybe, shall I repeat it? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States as of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all. Indivisible. Interesting. Why would you say it's indivisible if your feeling was that it's very much divisible after all you fought a civil war for one thing but you're divided along race gender every, every kind of way so you want to insist oh, no 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 we're we're indivisible interestingly when it says the flag of the united states they changed that because it was originally just a flag and then they realized people were having mental images of the polish flag the german flag the italian flag they were immigrants so the flag to them didn't mean america mm -hmm. they had to be put in there under god well and there's not supposed to be an established religion in, in America. That had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. That was introduced into in the 1950s. But the interesting thing to me is the origin, uh, that pledge which is celebrating an America in which people come together and fundamentally agree to the same things. That dates back to 1891 and a man called Francis Bellamy. And he was alarmed at the arrival in America of Jews East Europeans, what he called dark-skinned people from the Mediterranean, uh, who, as he said, were pouring into our country, dull-witted and fanatical immigrants. So that's why he created that. That Pledge of Allegiance was keep America white. And yet Whitney Houston sang that at the Super Bowl. An irony which is not apparent to anybody, I imagine, because <laughs> who cares what its history was. But you know, in the 50s, it had a special force, uh, and that's when Under God was put in, because, of course, America's enemy was the godless communism. That was also the time when they changed the American motto from a pluribus unum to in God we trust. That phrase comes from the national anthem. Now, the national anthem was created by Francis Scott Key, who was a one-time slave owner and who referred to black Americans as an inferior race of people and wanted to send them back to Africa. So when they sing the national anthem devised by, that goes back profoundly into racism. It's all a bit odd, really, isn't it? You, you know that place where the heads of presidents are carved out of stone, yep. a celebration of American democracy. Well, that was created by a man who was a former member of the Ku Klux Klan, who wanted originally to have Confederate figures up there, but was persuaded out of it. That mountain was stolen from the Indians and named after a gold prospector. So America's past is really somewhat ambiguous. And a phrase like the American dream 
is itself ambiguous. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But you mentioned the frontier, and that's obviously part of it. But I think you go back to the settlement of America for the beginning of all of this, especially for this blend of the material and the spiritual. Mm. When you think the first uh, European settlements, if we forget the Welsh and the Vikings, to in the north, it was the Puritans who went because they wanted to practice religion in the way they wanted freedom, a word which echoes down the corridors of time in America. And is, I think, part of the American dream, not always articulated, but in some way implicit. Of course, the Puritans were not in favour of freedom of religion, far from it. Um, they hanged people who had the wrong religion. Meanwhile, in the South, in Virginia, was a settlement which was funded by shareholders, and that was about making money. People went there to make their fortunes. So you had the spiritual and the material right at the beginning of the settlement of a, of America, and that would always be there. You can't dismiss the American dream as just about money and becoming rich and starting with nothing and ending up by being president of the United States. So every now and then one did come through, but more often than, than not, they didn't. But then the Declaration of Independence has that same ambiguity, which was differentiating America from Europe. And that, of course, is the thing about the American dream. You have to underline three times the word American <laughs> because, all right, the British didn't have it, the Germans, the Italians, whatever. No, it was American. And he defined those sort of inalienable rights as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, John Locke used the word estate, meaning property. The Virginians, in their declaration, used the word property and not happiness. Some people have suggested that Jefferson crossed out the word property and put in happiness. I don't think there's any evidence of that. It was drafted many times. Nobody ever crossed it out. But is it, it's certainly in the air. So life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, what the hell does life mean? Just Is that existence or is it a good life? Liberty, you know, freedom again. Uh, for whom exactly? Bearing in mind that Thomas Jefferson kept slave quarters and was having sexual relations with a slave woman. Happiness. Well, I mean, it should be life, liberty, happiness, three abstractions, but it's life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, not the possession of it, but the pursuit of it. And they're right at the beginnings with this notion that um, America's leaning into the future. There is a Godot coming at some stage. There is hope. I mean, Eugene O'Neill in The Iceman Cometh has two characters, one called Jimmy Tomorrow and the other one called Harry Hope. And they're ironic characters because, of course, you can be hoped to death. But it is the pursuit of happiness rather than the actual possession. So it's not something you have, it's something to which you aspire. It's something that is waiting for you. It's Gatsby's green light across the bay, something ineffable, not easily defined, which is one of the things about the American dream. We all have different dreams. It's not easily defined and it's reductive if it's boiled down simply 
to starting with poverty, social mobility, ending up with money. It, it's in the air, it's part of it, but it's by no means the, the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I think you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. The the American dream, the, the this idea of, of of liberty, of the pursuit of happiness, of freedom, of equality, of all these terms that are generally associated with the idea of the American dream, they're they're so broadly interpretable that they can have whatever meaning the person using it wants it to have. But if you look at the history books, if you look at the people who have achieved any sort of modicum of success or certainly what's defined as success, you know, you look at the presidents, you you know, you, you look at the people who have made wealth and and you know fortune in America, generally they've been white men. So Although the term itself it can be universally interpreted in any which way you want, the reality is the American dream seems to be more of a Caucasian dream. That's what I was saying about the Pledge of Allegiance. It doesn't say it's about white people, but that's how it came into existence in the first place. You mentioned the frontier, and that's really quite important because that does mark a very clear division between Europe and America. The fact is that America is a large place. Mm. George Oppen, the poet, wrote the word space large, and he said, I write it large because it comes large here. I think one of the things that strikes European when they first go to America, if they don't just go to Disneyland or to New York or whatever it is, is the sheer size of the country. You could get all 27 countries in the EU, indeed all 28, if we'd not committed ritual economic suicide with Brexit, you could put all those countries inside United States, probably to the advantage of the United States, but it's just sheer size. And that explains a great deal about America. My, my, I spent my first year in America in Manhattan, Kansas, not Manhattan, New York. Believe me, that world was wholly different. The things they believed in, their politics, they would take the local newspaper before any national newspaper. The TV they tuned into tended to be local television with those people with implanted teeth smiling vacuously and chatting about some local event. Land was what Europeans did not have. If you were American, you were on the East Coast, you were in contention with your employer, the hell with him. You took off, go west, young man, said Horace Greeley. And they went west and they settled and it was free land or almost free land. The, the various acts that were passed, the Homestead Acts of the mid-19th century, gave 120 acres to an individual, had to be an individual, at $1.25 an acre, lived there for five years, it was yours. Imagine doing that in America. <laughs> Imagine doing that in the United Kingdom today. Find a piece of land that isn't owned by somebody. Look at the dispute there's, there's been about free people feeling free to range where they want to. First thing happens is an injunction is slapped on them by a massive landowner. I mean, the royal family own great chunks of it, but um, much of central London is owned by a duke of this or a duke of that. Uh, but, in, but in America, land was free. 10% of America was given away under the Homestead Act. And you could be black and lay claim to it. People who couldn't lay claim were those who went to war against America in the Civil War. So... There was a difference. There was an America. This was almost the agrarian dream of Thomas Jefferson. He, he was a great believer in the yeoman farmer. Mm. 
uh, you raise, raise your own crops, feed your own people. And there's a kind of moral quality to that, a spiritual quality to being a yeoman farmer. I think there's a little element of that in, even in the European sensibility. Of course, the problem is, as with all things, it was corruptible and to some degree was corrupted. I said it had to be given to individuals. And that's another part of the dream. They may want to homogenize in the notion of a dream, but the dream is for, is for individuals. That's the whole point of it. Mm. Well, the big land corporations will get individuals to lay a claim and then have the land themselves and accumulate vast tracts of it. Uh, there was corruption of all kinds. A great example is um, the land rush of Oklahoma. The idea was everyone would line up along the, the border of Oklahoma. A gun would be fired. Everyone would be would rush in and stake out the territory. So they were all equal. They all start at the starting line, except that some were more equal than others. That's to say the person with a wagon goes faster than a man on foot. <laughs> a man on a horse goes faster than a man in a wagon. And most importantly, people didn't wait for the gun to fire. They went in sooner than the rest, which is why today Oklahoma is known as the sooner state. But then look at the web. The web was idealistic and then used for corrupt. Everything is corruptible in the end. <laughs> but the frontier was very important and it was rural and it was that solid individual. It produced the most so-called Madonnas of the Prairie. We think of the West as gunfighters, a male environment, but in fact, the heroines of it were the Madonnas of the Prairie, people, women who raised children, sometimes in terrible circumstances, sometimes having them die when they barely opened their eyes. Uh, it was a hard life, but it was a character forming life. And that was another America, uh, the, the bravery, brave, sorry, the braveness of those people. Mm. But of course, also that frontier between Missouri and Kansas, for example, uh, when the Civil War came, uh, was a place of violence. John Brown slaughtering people, mm. the raids on Lawrence, all those precursors to Harper's Ferry and, and the Civil War. So it was also an ungovernable, lawless place. And the debate was, will it be slave or will it be free? Everything seems to come down in some sense mm. to race. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that the, the idea of race, uh, whether it's... Uh, through slavery in the 1800s or, or the civil rights movement today it's uh, inextricably linked to american ideals it seems but uh, one thing that you you mentioned there is there seems to be a common thread in that whether you were a frontier moving west and claiming land or whether you're donald trump who's just taking his dad's money and buying a whole load of real estate land is the thing that seems to bind every success story together that, that we've touched on. So if I was to emigrate to America tomorrow and I've decided, right, I'm going to achieve the American dream, is that what I do? I just, I, I buy some land, I get a gun, I defend myself, bam, there we go. I've got the American dream. <laughs> uh, well, it helps if you start with money. I mean, the frontier was declared closed in 1890. It's a really odd concept that you can declare the frontier closed. It's to do with the percentage of people in a given area of space. That led into the Gilded Age. That is the age of huge fortunes that you, you were talking about implicitly, you know, the Rockefellers and so on, the, the 
Fisk's and uh, J.P. Morgan, money made out of railroads, out of oil, motor cars, all of those suddenly, it was industry that mattered. And they, people made enormous sums of money, but that wasn't the dream. dream is really not about becoming filthy rich. It's about social mobility. It's about moving up into the kind of middle class world, the world of a Norman Rockwell painting, mm. you know, of the family gathered around the Christmas tree or, or driving the new car with their hair blown in the wind, free, free. That's what Ford marketed freedom. Suddenly you weren't restricted to where you lived. You could drive, you, you were free. So that enormous fortunes were made, but actually there was a reaction against that and it led to the antitrust legislation. And the way these people dealt with the hostility towards them is interesting in itself. The first piece of advice was create a foundation. So the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, everyone's forgotten that Ford uh, was an anti-Semite of global proportions, um, but he started that up because you can get a grant from the Ford <laughs> Foundation. John D. Rockefeller led to the creation of industry, uh, which is public relations. That was the beginning of the public relations, where they had to burnish the image of these people who were thought to be manifest crooks. And of course, a lot of the money that was made was made illegally. They were breaking laws left, right and centre, and it, it did lead to, to legislation. But there was a worse thing waiting for them, which I hinted, I suppose, at the beginning, the Depression. What happened to the American dream? You, you said I wrote a biography of Arthur Miller. Miller's family, a classic example, nine of them came over from Poland, carrying nothing but a Bible and a sewing machine. They settled in the Lower East Side in a tenement and slowly worked their way up. The youngest child, who was six when he came over, ended up owning the second largest women's clothing manufacturers in America. Arthur Miller was born into a rich family who lived at the top of Central Park in one of those huge apartments. If I say apartment, we're used to, you know, a couple of rooms, if we're lucky, maybe three. Huge apartments at the top of Central Park. They had a Polish maid. They had a chauffeur driven car, place out on Far Rockaway, and they lost nearly all of it. They were millionaires, and they lost nearly all of it and had to go across the bridge to Brooklyn and ended up in a small frame house uh, afraid of the mortgage man who came to call. And for a lot of the people, if American dream was partly a capitalist dream, it, it was in part about money, not extremes of money, but enough to live that comfortable middle life. Well, capitalism ran into the buffers in 1929. The millers lost their money because they'd invested in the stock market. People would be fools not to, you know, you invested one day, it was worth more the next day. And it seemed to go up inexorably until suddenly it it didn't. So that kind of dream collapsed and a new dream came in, which was communism. It was said in, in the 1930s, if you were at a university campus, it was easier to join the Communist Party than a fraternity. It was fascism was developing in, in Europe. If you believed in freedom, you supported the, the right side when it came to not the right right side, the correct side in, in Spain. And you felt Yes, the American dream, if it was capitalist, had 
come to an end. But there was another dream elsewhere, and it was a community of people. Remember Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath is about this family who are dispossessed. And incidentally, the end of the frontier, as it were, and that agrarian dream came when the land blew away. Oklahoma, that's soon the state, the land just, the soil blew away. And that happened to the Jodes in the Grapes of Wrath. The family go west, and eventually the great understanding comes when Marjo says, it used to be the family was first, ain't so no more. Now, it's everybody. Back on the East Coast, Arthur Miller didn't see any of that at all. He couldn't understand for what he saw was dog-eat-dog dog, uh, in, in New York City. But there was this notion of a common people coming together, a different version of the American dream. Hard times forge people together. Uh, Arthur Miller's first success was called All My Sons. And that was because a man put his family before he put the well-being of others. That was the ethos of the 1930s. Did that come to an end? And and it's interesting because from what you've you've been saying, it almost feels as though the American dream is is something that has to coexist with the American nightmare. You know, it it has to be something to aspire to. It has to be something that's always in front of you, and therefore there has to be something behind you. There has to be a worse position for you to be at in order to be looking forward towards whatever this American dream is. What you're describing there is the immigrant dream. Bear in mind, the United States, for the most part, is an immigrant society. All right, not the blacks who were dragged in chains and not the Native Americans who they got rid of. Um, That was the other side of the frontier, incidentally. Um, But it's an immigrant dream. People sought freedom. Freedom from, freedom to. Freedom from starvation, the Irish. Freedom from persecution, the Jews. Freedom to become something else. Nobody ever went to America to be what they were. They went to America to become something Mm. else. It was about reinvention. Sometimes their names were changed arbitrarily by people in immigration, but sometimes by themselves. The great uh, Jewish intellectuals nearly all changed their names. Of course, people in Hollywood had to change their names because Jewish names didn't go down too well, despite the fact that Hollywood was a Jewish profession. But so immigration meant, well, it was said in Eastern Europe, America was in everybody's mouth. It was on everybody's mind. It was the other place where you could get away and be free, free from persecution, free from penury. So that fed into the dream. But of course, that has another side, because despite Emma Lazarus on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty in her poem talking about the huddled mass, how welcome they are to come through the golden door. The golden door was slammed quite shut several times. There was a Chinese exclusion act to keep them out. Another act that kept Asians in general out. There was hostility towards those from Mediterranean areas. I mentioned that in the origins of the Pledge of Allegiance. So it, it was a battle. To this day, it was a very interesting plays written by people who are the children of immigrants trying to lay claim to an America while at the same time being suspicious of aspects of America. What does the immigrant want to do? Theoretically, you want to cling on to the past, recreate in, in America the world that they had left. But in effect, they want to center themselves, sunder themselves from history. History was behind them. History was Europe. The future was America. 
which has led to that rather curious attitude of Americans toward history. Gore Vidal called it the United States of amnesia, that people didn't actually want to engage with the past, except at the level of myth. So, you know, remember the Alamo. Well, really, uh, a bunch of slaveholders, slave traders, who were fighting Mexicans who had done away with the slave trade years before. But it, it, America exists, the past exists as myth. Look at St. Patrick's Day in America, which would embarrass the Irish in Ireland, because in America they stain rivers mm. green. They all go around wearing bizarre costumes. History is not what America is about. History is Europe. People, they go to America now, from America on, as tourists, they regard Europe as a museum. It's a place you go, oh good, how quaint it is. Look, we've just had this coronation, for mm -hmm. God's sake. We, we get the dressing up box and it appeals to Americans. Go to Italy, go to Spain, it's, that's a museum. But it's not what they're about. What they're about is reaching for the stars. It's going to Mars. It's about tomorrow, about what they can be, what they will become. But the question is, who's the dream for them? Samuel Huntington, uh, in a book called Who Are We?, which is a question which recurs in America. There are more books about American identity than the identity of any other nation. And in this book, Who Are We?, he says, there can be no Americano dream. What? So you have to abandon, to claim the American dream, you have to abandon it, your, your own heritage. And yet by 2060, 28% of Americans will be Spanish-speaking. Mm. But they're not part of the dream, apparently. To become part of the dream, you have to conform to this other model, which, of course, doesn't make a lot of sense. So I guess finally then, um, if, if it's even possible to answer this question, what is the American dream today? Is it, is it even one thing? I don't think it is, but it, and, and is it attainable? If, if you look now at life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Life, if it actually means existence, America is 33rd out of 38 OECD countries for infant mortality. It's 47th in the country for life expectancy. And if it's liberty, well, America is responsible for 25% of all prisoners in the world. And Russia and China, that's 50%. In the There's a thing called the International Freedom Index, in which America should come out ahead. They're 15th in the world, just one below the United Kingdom, of all things. Happiness, there's a happiness index. They're 19th in the world for that. Social mobility, which you think is at the heart of the dream, they're 27th. Inequality is highest in the G7. So all those elements of the dream seem not to apply. Uh, America is not what America tells itself it is, but the American dream is America telling itself a story. It's telling itself a story of what it believes in. It does believe in social mobility. Whatever the facts are, it does believe that effort will win you a place. Remember the popular children's writer of the 19th century, who was Horatio Alger Jr., who wrote books called From Log Cabin to Whiteout, Mark the Match Boy by Luck and Pluck. Interestingly, um, sexually abused young boys, made a fortune and then lost it all. But that was the crude version of the dream, simply to be born American. But it still attracts immigrants. It can't be dead if people want to go there. Immigrants are still fleeing from 
and fleeing too. They're coming up from the south. Um, they're coming across from Vietnam, Cambodia, everywhere America fights. People come from, not, not despising America, but wanting what America has to offer. It is about transformation. They are after success. Success has become part of the dream now. I mean, personality, to be on, to be liked, to get enough likes when you're on social media, uh, to be an influencer. Uh, we're living in an age where actually suddenly, no, it's not the homogenous America we're looking for. We want to explore our other identities, whether that's a gender, a, a sexual identity, a national origin or whatever. So many of the writers, playwrights I'm describing, come from Korea or wherever else, and that's what they want to explore. They don't want to say they're homogenized Americans. They want America, but there is this other world in their mind and it's a world that they value more than they did in the past it's uh, it's no longer a melting pot this episode of america a history podcast was produced edited and hosted by me liam heffernan a special thanks to our guest this week, Christopher Bixby. And if you're interested in learning more, you can check out the links in the show notes. Next week, we do our first presidential biography as we take a closer look at the life of Jimmy Carter. <laughs>